When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And welcome to another episode of the Inspiring Story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Our guest in this episode was an architect of one of the greatest triumphs in Australian sporting history, a win that broke the longest winning streak in sporting history and put Perth and Fremantle on the world sailing map. He's a former school teacher whose love of sailing saw him compete in five America's Cups, including that famous win on Australia 2 in Rhode Island back in 1983. Not only that, he was also the man behind that incredibly ambitious plan to build a replica of the Endeavour. So plenty to get through in the next hour. Let's say hello and welcome to the program, John Longley. Hello, John. Hi, Tim. How are you? Going well, thank you. Um, So much interest again, renewed interest in that famous uh, win from 1983 with this new Netflix documentary that's just come out called uh, The Race of the Century. So we're coming up to 40 years, which is kind of mind-boggling, isn't it, since that that famous win. But the legend just seems to grow. Um, Are you surprised that we're still reminiscing after all this time? Oh, look, Tim, surprised, shocked, humbled, uh, proud. All of those things. Um, I mean, as you say, 39 years ago, we had a sporting event that certainly uh, did stop the nation. Uh, for uh, more, Because it wasn't just a sporting event. It was about Australia versus America and, and underdog and all of that. But the, the, the fact that someone has now put in literally millions of dollars into making a, a documentary of a sporting event 39 years ago uh, is just, I just blown away by it, quite frankly. Yeah. Let's go back to your early years, John. Tell us, where were you born? Uh, where did oh, you grow up? Well, I was born in England, um, in Surbiton, um, <laughs> South London. And my parents used to uh, run, a, run a little prep school in a town called Isha. And uh, they, um, after the war was over, uh, they struggled through those first three or four years of uh, of rationing and, you know, Britain was in a terrible, terrible situation. And my father had been to Australia when he was in his 20s um, and they sold the school and packed up and said, no, we want another life for our for our boys And because I'm the youngest of three. Um, and so uh, we jumped onto a ship uh, called the Orontes with many other English people and... Uh, Arrived in Fremantle in 1949. I mean, I was only four years old at the time. Um, Mm. And uh, so I've basically grown up uh, in Australia, mainly in City Beach, uh, is where we ended up living. Uh, My father was a school teacher at Hale School, and I went to Hale School as well. 
And then, of course, when I'd finished school, I basically, like so many kids, didn't know what to do. And um, in those days, if you were, uh, you know, you, you tended up ending up in clerical jobs. Um, because, like today, the kids all end up in hospitality jobs. We all ended up in clerical jobs. And I did that for about 80 months and just drove me nuts. And uh, uh, so I ended up going to teacher's college. Did my, and When you went to teacher's college in those days, it was like signing up for the, the army or the navy. You know, you did two years training and three years you had to teach, uh, which I was very happy to do because I really enjoyed it. But as soon as I was out of my bond, as it was called, I was off. And so I went to England and uh, started teaching there and and got a letter from one Alan Bond who said, I'm bringing Apollo over to do Cow's Week and all of that. And I'd met Alan sailing before that. And uh, so I started my association with Alan Bond in those very, very early days in 1971 when Alan had only just started sailing. And that saw us go right through, well, five America's Cups and the Endeavour and so forth. So it was a, it was a very long association with the man. Mm. So just going back a little bit, that that trip to Australia as a four-year-old, uh, I'm not sure how much you remember of it, but w- was that your first proper experience actually out on the water on a boat? I'm sure it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. None of none of my parents yeah. or family any had anything to do with the sea. Uh, it was uh, something that was uh, somehow in my DNA from day one. I don't know why, but I was all – and I guess, you know, we lived at – as I said earlier, we lived in City Beach um, and uh, – it was before television, before social media, before anything. And so when you had, when you went at school, we just used to walk down and play in the sea. So I sort of grew up in the sea in a way, swimming, surfing, mucking around. We didn't have boats or anything. But uh, later on, because um, I was, as I said, I went to Hale School because my father taught there. And I, I learned to sail in the Navy cadets. Um, when you were 14, uh, you had to join one of the armed services at school either the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force. And I joined the Navy and uh, learnt to sail in a 27-foot whaler, which is a great big, heavy, clunking open boat. And that was the start of my sailing career. Yeah. And do you remember as a teenager then really just falling in love with the the idea of being out in the water and having the wind uh, propel you along? Look, it's it's something that's never left me. I mean, if, if you gave me today, you know, I'm 77, if you gave me... If you gave me a tin canoe with a with a tea with a you know a tea towel for a sail, I'd still enjoy the fact that you can harness the wind and go wherever you want to, and no one tells you what to do. You just go and do your own thing out there. So yes, um, I just straight away fell in love with sailing. Always have, always will. It's something that I will I will never do, never stop doing, unless I for whatever reason can't do it, and I can't imagine yeah. what would stop me. You mentioned uh, Alan Bond a moment ago. Can you can you remember the first time you met Alan? Yeah, um, I was um, uh, I'd, when I when I started sailing uh, down at Royal Freshwater Bay Yacht Club, I um, in which I just sort of stumbled in through the front door, you know, and uh, wondered. You know, I was just fascinated by the place, and, and one of the kids at school uh, invited me to come sailing, and then I went sailing with him, and then I grew up. And I, I I was. Even though I'm a longley, I, I actually was very small for a while. I, I matured very late in life. And so I was quite small. And then suddenly I grew and I was too big to sail dinghies. And so I went ocean racing. And um, I was lucky to uh, be taken to, uh, invited into the crew of a guy called Peter Packer, who, who was a very, very good ocean racer and had actually had the very first fiberglass ocean racer boat in this place called Hotspur. 
Anyway, we went and did the Sydney Hobart in 1968 and um, with, there was a party, as there very often is, Sydney Hobarts, <laughs> uh, in Sydney and uh, I literally um, was coming to the front door of this house where the party is and bumped into this little round fellow called Alan Bond and uh, introduced, <laughs> you know, was introduced to him and chatted, chatted to him a bit that night and uh, I met him a couple of other times, you know, at the end of the Hobart and so forth. Um, and then he was a good friend of uh, Dr. Peter Packer, who owned this boat that I was sailing on. By this time, I'd, my bond was over, and I'd gone to England, and I, I got this letter from from from, from Alan, um, inviting me to sail with him. But actually, I've, I should jump in. Just before that, um, about a year before it, Alan was going to go and do the Bermuda race, and I thought, gosh, just imagine doing that, you know. And um, so. He, uh, I went and sort of knocked on his door and uh, I can remember knocking on his door and uh, uh, Eileen Red Bond sort of answered and I said, oh, could I see Mr. Bond? He said, well, he's as sick as a, sick as a chook, um, but you can come up to his bedroom. So I went up to his bedroom and there was Alan lying in bed. He had a terrible flu or something. And he said to me, uh, I said, well, you know, I'm interested in coming with you to do the Bermuda race. And he said, oh, bizarre. He said, who is your father? I thought, what a strange thing to ask. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and uh, and then uh, he basically said, oh, well, you're, you're an hour too late. I've offered the spot to a guy. If he doesn't take it, you can have it. Have you got a passport? I said, yes, not having one. Can you leave straight away? I said, yes, actually already bonded to the education department. As it <laughs> turned out, none of those things happened. And, and, and Bonnie rang me a little bit later and said, no. Uh, the the guy's taken the spot. And so it was a year later that I was in England and I got this letter from Alan saying, come sailing with me. Wow. Uh, obviously a very controversial character with a, you know, a controversial <clears throat> history, particularly here in, in Western Australia. That's perhaps a discussion for another time. But what do you most remember of, of Alan? Well, he was an incredible optimist. I, and I think, I think <clears throat> in a way his optimism almost got him into trouble, you know, because he never really assumed anything was going to go wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, like he was just always upbeat and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. Um, I remember in the 1980 America's Cup when we when, when we actually won a race for the very first time and, it was, uh, and you know, we then got beaten in 4-1 and I saw this rubber duck coming over with, with Alan on board and I thought, oh God, he's not going to be too happy after, you know, losing this race again and so forth. And he leapt on board and he said, that was fantastic. You know, this is our fourth go, third go, sorry, in 1980. And he said, that was fantastic. We won a race. Well, we're going to come back next year. We're going to build two boats and John Burton's going to be on board and da, da, da. Like he was already planning Australia yeah. tour in Australia. And, you know, and when he sort of, all his business enterprises collapsed, he would have figured that that was never going to happen. It would have just, he would have rode it through and he'd come out the other side and it would have all been good. And uh, so, yeah, he's an amazingly charismatic man and you got swept. I mean, lots of times I was cross as hell with him, but you go and meet him and next minute you're coming out of his house again and, yeah, yeah, we're off again, you know, like there's no stopping him, no stopping him. Uh, yeah. So he's an extraordinary character. Let's take a break on Inspiring Stories. Joel Longley is our special guest. Back with more after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 
Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Yachting legend John Longley is our special guest. Obviously, he had his own um, motivations for being part of the America's Cup and and possibly being behind a winning mm. um, venture um, in an America's Cup. Were his uh, motivations and, and his agenda was was it ever at odds with you guys who were actually on the boat trying to win the thing? Boy, uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean. You've got to ask, why did Alan get involved in sailing in the first place? I mean, he had no background in sailing as a, you know, as a kid from the back, back streets of London, you know. Um, but he ended up uh, being settling a, a business debt with someone on a boat called Panamuna, very famous ocean racer of the period. She's still floating off there, Royal Freshwater Bay Yacht Club. Um, and, <laughs> and there was these two amazing boats, Panamuna and Unamara, that used to, uh, the other one was, you know, uh, sailed by Neil McAllister. And, I mean, this was when Perth was a one-horse one hick town, you know, a little country town. And, you know, the races between these two boats on the, in the naturalist race and the Bunbury races were the back pages of the Sunday Times. You know, it's extraordinary you think about it. So, anyway, Alan ended up with this boat, but, of course, it couldn't sail. So he, a mate of his, Ted Grigg, Dr. Ted Grigg, taught him how to sail. And I th- suddenly realised, he realised that he was sort of mixing in a, a social structure that he hadn't hadn't moved into or uh, met before. And he suddenly really liked, I think he, he, he did love going to sea. And he did love ocean racing. He did love the camaraderie of ocean racing, but he loved who he met as well. And that just grew from who he met at Royal Perth Yacht Club uh, or uh, over in Sydney to, with the America's Cup, who he was going to meet when he started playing on the ultimate feel of the America's Cup. Um, mm. and he, he got into the America's cup because someone really annoyed him. So <laughs> he was doing that, Amer- that Bermuda race that I was telling you about. And they were in New York with, uh, Bob Miller, who became Ben Lexon. And, uh, they were down in a, in a boatyard, um, in New York. And there was this America's cup boat called uh, Valiant. It was up on the hard and Bobby Miller, who became Ben Lexon, changed his name, that's another story. Uh, he said, come on, Alan, I'll show you this. Look at this. And uh, so they got a ladder and they, because the boat was up on the hardest, they said, and put the ladder and crawled up onto the top of it. And Bonnie didn't know anything about the America's Cup at all. And Bob, Bob Miller was explaining it to all him. And this little guy, Vic Romana from New York Yacht Club, leapt up and said, what are you two blokes doing? And, uh, and he said, I'm looking at your boat, mate. And he said, well, bloody well, get it off. You've got no right to be on this bloody boat. No, it really got stuck into him. Well, you don't, you know, Alan really, you know, as Alan does, bit back. He said, you know what, mate? You can stick your boat up, you're proverbial, and uh, well, I'm going to go back with this guy's going to design a boat. We're going to come rip that bloody cup off you. Now, that was in 1970. Okay, it took, wow. him, took him 13 years. And one of the great ironies that one of the first things I had to do when I had, you know, with, with Australia too, I had also a, a managerial position. I was the project manager. And one of the things we had to do was to write to the New York Yacht Club America's Cup Committee and ask permission to use the um, the tank facility in Holland, uh, which is where we tank tested Australia too. And the guy that I wrote to was Vic Romana. It was Vic Romana who came back and said, yeah, you guys can use the tank facility. So 13 years later, he opened the door to what in actual fact led to us being able to uh, to win because we needed to be able to use that facility to be able to you know, develop something as bizarre as Australia too. Uh, John, as I mentioned uh, at the start of the show, five America's Cups. Mm. Why is it such 
a special event. I mean, I think people are kind of, you know, somewhat aware of the um, the longest winning streak as it was, 132 years before Australia managed to win it. But but why is it such a special event? Well, it's a uh, it's a fossil event. It's 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 the oldest international sporting competition in the world. So it predates cricket, it predates baseball, soccer, everything. So it was a time when there wasn't any international sport. Uh, it was basically based in 1851 when the uh, the Americans took a, a pilot cutter that they had specially built or styled on a pilot cutter. They took it across to Cowes because 1851 was the, the year of the Great Exhibition when Queen Victoria and Britain was at its height and was showing off to the world that they could do anything, you know. And uh, in those days, there was sailing racing down at the uh, Royal Yacht Squadron in Cowes, but most of it on the big boat stuff was based on, on wagering. And the Americans had been there a couple of years before and had looked at the American fleet and said, you know what, our boats are faster than this. And these guys said, we can build a boat and come across here and we can absolutely make a killing. And they, mm-hmm. But then they made a mistake. They rocked, they sailed the boat across they got off the needles, which is at the entrance to the Solent, which is the piece of water between Southampton and the Isle of Wight, and a couple of the English boats rocked down to sort of welcome them or sort of escort them back up to cows, and the guy who was the captain of the America couldn't resist it, and he sort of pulled the sheets on hard and beat them up, and they didn't get one bet the whole summer. And uh, so finally Queen Victoria put up this cup for Cow's Week called the 100 Guinea Cup, and they weren't going to invite the Americans. It was just going to be for the Brits. And the, it was the media that bullied them into allowing the America to sail. So she sailed against a fleet of 20-odd of British boats and killed a lot of them and, took a, and then took the cup back to America. And so that's what started in 1851. And then the Americans... You know, they uh, they then converted it into a challenge cup, and then they they incredibly aggressively defended it from then on. Um, and mm-hmm. every time that looked like that they were getting close to maybe losing it, they would come up with some 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 new laws to new rules. We well, can't do this anymore. You can't do that. You know, whatever, whatever. So it became almost an unclimbable mountain. And as you know what human beings are like, when someone says you can't do that, you just say, stuff it, you know, yes, we can. And, uh, and so there was this enormous, because it was, un, no one had won it, and, and it goes back so long, it became this, you know, this, gosh, what happens if we could do that? And mm-hmm. so uh, I think that's the key to it, you know. And, and not, only did, not only was it not the... No one won it before us. No one even got close. If you go back and look at the history of the America's Cup, there was really only one other challenge, the one in 1934, when the Endeavour, a boat called the Endeavour, J-boat called the Endeavour, actually won the first two races. Then the Americans changed their boat and then won the next four. So it was, I, I know I did, as you say, I did five America's Cup. Well, the, f- the fourth one was Australia too. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first, in 1980, the third one was the first time we actually won a race. So it was not easy to do, you know. And uh, so I, I think that's, that was the, 
you know, when I used to go and say to my mates, look, I'm going to do another America's Cup, they honestly used to shake their heads and think, <laughs> think, shouldn't you get on with your life? You're never going to win that bloody thing. It's impossible, you know. I'm like, well, you know, I'll give one more go, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, like, look, it was, it, was, it was unattainable and therefore, damn it, we've got to have another go. Yeah, and it seemed for a little while, uh, even in the, the 1983 victorious uh, America's Cup, the 3-1 down, that you weren't going to win that one uh, as well. But uh, as the history books will show, yeah. you did. Hey, John, we need to take a quick break. But after that, I want to ask you about uh, the legend of of Ben Lexham okay. as well and the role that he played uh, in that famous win as well. So we'll get into that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. John Longley is our special guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 20 seconds to go. Now they're marching. Here they're getting up speed. The Australians are still stalling. 15 seconds to go. They like this. Now they're coming back. I don't know what they're doing, but I wouldn't do what they're doing. They're going to drive over. They're going to start at this end of the line. They may feel this end of the line is favored. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 2, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Don't be surprised we went over. Absolutely absurd start. The Australians are going to have to come back around the buoy. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My special guest in this episode is veteran sailor John Longley. John, so much of the legend uh, of that 1983 America's Cup win is also the legend of Ben Lexon, who seemed to be this kind of eccentric sort of genius. Is that who he was to you? Look, that is perfect. That's exactly what he was. Why do you say he's a genius? Well, I mean, like you know, a lot of clever people around, but I mean, I think his his his... The proof of his genius, if you like, is the fact that this is a man who grew up virtually without parents. He was obsessed by sailing and the sea and boats and whatever from a very young age. He lived in a shed at the bottom of a garden of a very well-known Sydney family, Carl Rives's family. Uh, and Carl was just a good mate of his and he didn't have anywhere to live, so he lived in this shed. He did three years of formal schooling. Uh, then became an apprentice um, with the New South Wales uh, Railways. Um, and so he had enormous skills as far as metalwork and so forth that he's, he's learnt as an apprenticeship. But, for example, he then sort of, you know, if you like, stumbled into, in, in, into yacht design. That's a very technical thing. And I remember at one stage being ex explained to me that um, he needed to, to use calculus for some aspect of the design. Now... I went, to, I went to school and did maths and calculus was always a bit beyond me. He taught himself <laughs> calculus because he needed to know how to do it. You know, like, Amazing. how do you do that? Yeah. Uh, and yet because he had this only three years of formal training, he had this totally open mind. Nothing had constrained it. No barriers had been set up. No, 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 there was no uh, pathways or directions. So his mind just roamed everywhere. And he was obsessed by nature. He would watch uh, dolphins. He'd watch fish. He'd watch birds fly. He was just fascinated by anything in the natural world and in, in lots of other things. He loved motor cars, for example, as well. Uh, and he just had this incredibly open mind. 
And I think that is why he was able to design Australia 2. Now, let me say, well, um, how could that be? Well, a 12-metre boat is a very, very constrained design. There's not much you're allowed to do with it. You know, um, you have a couple of speed dollars, as I say, you can spend. The boat can be a bit longer or a bit shorter. If it's longer, you have less sail area. If it's shorter, you have a bit more sail area. But they all look roughly the same because the other complication to rule we won't go into defines what it is. And that Benny went to uh, Holland and another thing about him, so he designed a, 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 a boat that was going to be better than Australia, the previous boat that we had. And when you make the, you make a model which is 22 foot long, it's a scale of one to three, and then you sit on a, you make the model up and then you sit on a carriageway on this tank which is a kilometre long and you charge up and down time and time and time and time again, getting all this data from, from the model. And Benny would be, was chatting away with the, the guy who was, the, the, you know, the technician. And being Benny, he'd never stopped talking to this guy, never talked, getting to, listening to him and whatever, whatever. And uh, this guy, he said, well, what's the problem? He said, oh, well, because the way the boats are and so forth, there's so much pressure at the top that we end up with these quarter waves, da, 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 da. And this bloke, who'd never designed a boat in his life, most likely never sailed a boat, he said, you should, just put the mm. key, you should just put the keel on the other way up. And Benny went, yeah, of course. Why don't we do that? And like no one else, everyone just laughed him off, you know, stupid technician. Never been a, and of course, the, the genius of Australia's two keel was the boat was that the keel was upside down. It was the, the narrow bit was at the top and the fat bit was at the bottom. Now, why had no one ever done that before? Mm. Well, first of all, in the 12 metre rule, stability is free. So if it doesn't get measured as a part of the formula. So if you've got a very stiff boat, it can resist the wind pressure and go faster because it doesn't get knocked over. So that's good. But the problem with doing that is you end up losing all this hydrodynamic pressure around the tip of the wings, which is why aeroplane wings are fat at the, at the base of you know, the hull of the, of the plane and come to a tip because you don't want to lose pressure around the tip, right? But you can't – so you lost so much pressure that anything wouldn't work. And, no, and, and someone said, well, put an end plate on it. But he said, no, we can't do that. It doesn't work because it's too much, too much um, uh, you know, wetter surface area. And so, ah, but – and at that time, when Benny had flown there and whatever plane it was, the wings would have just come to an end. When you flew to London recently, you'd looked out the window and you'd have seen a wing tip. You'd have seen a winglet mm. on the end of the – and they were just developing that technology. And Ben, with – assistance from the Dutch guys that were doing all this stuff, developed a, uh, a winglet that allowed the keel to be upside down. Now, you don't do any of that sort of stuff. And if, if you are constrained by convention, mm. Benny wasn't strained by any convention. And hence, you had this bizarre keel on Australia too that allowed us, quite frankly, to win the America's Cup. It wasn't the only reason we won the America's Cup. The sail program was absolutely fantastic, lots of other things, but we wouldn't have won it without that keel. And the Americans were so suspicious of it, weren't they? Um, you know, and it, it seemed like you guys maybe played up to that a little bit and kind of tried <laughs> to be yeah. that, that history around it. But but they, at one point, tried to have you effectively disqualified from the competition, didn't they? They did indeed. They, they were convinced that uh, Benny couldn't have 
couldn't have done this. You know, it had to be done by yeah. somebody else. And Benny was just putting his name to it. But, you know, when you go to a place like the NSMB, the tank testing facility in, in Holland, you've got lots of other clever people around you, you know. And uh, so you can imagine a situation where you go there and you'd have to say, oh, someone said, well, what about this? And someone said, oh, you can't say that. You're not, you're not Australian. You're Dutch. I'm not allowed to listen to you. So there was lots, obviously there was input from the Dutch. And then they tried to use that to say, well, Benny hadn't, hadn't designed it. It was, a, it was designed by Dutch technicians. Sure, the Dutch technicians were there. Sure, they were, you know, clever people bouncing ideas around. But the irony of the whole deal was that the bloke, the bloke who designed Liberty, the boat that we beat, he was Dutch. He just happened to have. A, he just happened to have been given an American passport about a year before, um, so it's just it, the whole thing was a joke. Not only that, they actually went to Holland, the American New York Yacht Club, and asked them to design them a boat as well. So I mean, you know, it was a long, long boat. They were just they were just terrified because the boat was going so well, and it mm. bugged them enormously that we covered it up. It really bugged them. John, you were a grinder, yeah, uh, Australia too. Uh, tell us what does it what does a grinder do? What's your well, role? My role was the fact that I'd done three America's Cups before that as a forward hand. That's what I'm proudest of being a forward hand, leaping around the foredeck, putting the spinnakers up and pulling them down. And we're all in the, you know, we're in Adventureland up there, I mean, where, where all the action is. And then I wasn't supposed to be in the Cup crew. I was I was project manager. I was management material by that stage. We were over in uh, we were over in Melbourne doing a regatta before we went to America, and the far, poor old forward hands made a couple of bad mistakes. Um, and uh, Bondi got on the radio and rang up Bertrand and said, you, you, "You clowns! How are we going to win this if forty guys can't put the sails up?" And then Bertrand went straight back at him and said, "Well, you won't give me John Longley, therefore this is what happens." And Bondi turned to me and said, "Get on the boat! Go over there now!" And I never got off it. Um, so, but we had a really good forward hands, quite frankly. So what we wanted to do was to have a link person in the middle of the boat who was the link between the back end and the tacticians and so forth and the forward hands who could figure out what was actually doable. And so I, I was a bit small for a grinder. I mean, I, I'm six foot five, but I'm not huge. Um, and uh, so we had these two massive rowers, Will Bailey and Brian Richardson, and they used to rotate on the starboard handles. But basically, to answer your question, it's a long way around your question, but the, the, the job is to, 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 to the, you man the winches that, uh, that you know, drag the sails in on each tack. And it's very phys physically demanding um, and a very aerobic in actual fact. It's not sort of strengthening. It's more about speed and having very good um, aerobic qualities. And I've always had that. But we had also big power boys to my right as well. But on the last beat, for example, uh, on that seventh race, we did 45 tacks in four and a half miles. So the boat, we were never not grinding virtually, always, you know, back and forth and mm. so forth. So it was, it was great fun. But I was also the link person to the foredeck, which was very important. You were 3-1 down uh, in that famous series in the best of seven. Uh, I've seen you describe before, John, you had a moment where uh, you really started to doubt uh, whether you could pull this off. Um, you were in a park, I believe, um, and it was your wife who helped, um, uh, you know, restore your yeah. uh, your positivity. Uh, do you do you still remember that moment clearly? Clearly, and I mean, every sportsman 
has their, their, their time when they really doubt themselves. Um, and this is, remember, this is 11 years of my life that I'd committed to this event. Yeah. event. And we lost the first two races purely by uh, breakages, very unlucky breakages, both of them. So we were two down. We won a race. And then Dennis win the, win, won the third race, A, by sailing brilliantly. Um, and uh, we were always trying to get around him. And suddenly we were three, one down. To win the next three was going to be tough. And I, I couldn't believe that I'd, you know, I, I mean, there's nothing specifically I'd done. I just couldn't believe that here we go again. And I remember coming home really, as I said, as you said, doubting myself. And my wife, Jenny, she so we we had a 14-month-old child, and we left the child with, with John Bertrand's wife, actually. And I went out into the park, and Jen just picked me up and put me back up there and said, mate, you know, one race tomorrow, you can beat these guys. And she just, she was fantastic. John Longley is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is John Longley. We've been reflecting uh, on that incredible America's Cup triumph in 1983. Can you believe it? 39 years ago. Uh, John, just before we move on to things uh, other than the America's Cup, um, we just heard a clip there of, uh, of Bob Hawke, um, a couple of famous uh, quotes from him at the time. But uh, were you guys fully aware of just the level of support and excitement uh, back in Australia, um, you know, when you're over in, in the States? I mean, because you're over there for several months, aren't you, um, as part of this big America's Cup regatta. Were you, were you aware of just how glued to this competition we were? No. Uh, we were there for five months. It's an incredibly long event, isn't it? Um, I think in five months we had five days off. But, uh, no, look, we uh, deliberately blocked it out as much as we possibly could because all it does is add additional pressure. And, of course, it was a sailing event. You assume, you know, you're going to get the same amount of coverage you get for other sailing events. Um, <clears throat> maybe a bit more, but so forth. So as it grew, what are the things that we would muck around? When we sailed out to, onto, onto the track, we used to refer to all the helicopters and all everything above us as the air show, nothing to do with us. Uh, all the other boats, all, all the spectator floats, hundreds and hundreds of boats around us, we used to refer to as the, as the fishing competition, uh, nothing to do with us. The whole thing was about us racing that red boat over there. Uh, it was just us 11 guys against them 11 guys, and that's what it was. It was just a yacht race. So we generally blocked it out. We did it so effectively that after we'd won, um, we got this telex, do you remember them, uh, from <clears throat> the state government saying that they were going to do a, uh, uh, you know, a ticket parade and a parade from Fremantle down to the Esplanade to welcome us home. I remember saying to Warren Jones, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever had. I mean, there might be a few people in Fremantle. There'll be about three people and a dog on the highway between there, you know, on the Stirling Highway. And, you know, blow me down. They were, they were, they were three deep the whole way. Uh, there was 250,000 people on the Esplanade, which was about one in four of the West Australian public. I mean, isn't that unbelievable? Anyway, so, no, I, we were not aware. And when we got back, it was just extraordinary to realise that the impact that it had 
in on Australia. Remember, Australia was at that time was in recession. It needed something to lift it, and uh, all of those and the three one down, the boys' own annual way of winning it, and all of those. Um, the fact that you didn't have to know anything about sailing, you just had to know whether they won. Uh, all of those things led to the extraordinary um, impact that it had back here. Yeah, bringing the uh, the America's Cup event uh, to Fremantle. Uh, uh, you know, the, the history books will show what an absolute um, boon that was for Fremantle, mm. the makeover that the city got. But for you being so proudly from Fremantle or around that area, John, what did, what did it mean for mm. you personally uh, oh. to be able to um, have this opportunity to defend the Cup uh, in your own backyard? Well, I've, you know, a Fremantle boy and I just, I, I just love Fremantle and Newport. I love Newport. You know, Newport and Fremantle are very similar places in lots of ways. And I was just so proud to be able to show uh, this incredible little town of Freo to the rest of the world. I think that was the thing that I loved so much. And it was so wonderful to see that, you know, the, the, the town, the state government did a great job and Fremantle Council did a great job in not letting it you know, letting it letting it still be Frio and fixing up a whole lot of stuff and basically did a, such a great job. And it's one of the great disappointments of my life that we that we didn't succeed successfully defend it. It's just you know, what's the hardest thing in sport, you know, when you get to the top of the of the mountain staying there, you know, ask Melbourne, you know, <laughs> ask anybody, it's really tough uh, to stay there because some of the decisions you get you make get affected by the fact that we are and we made some bad decisions when we came back. John, tell us about the, uh, building a replica of that famous ship, the Endeavour. Yeah, Why on yeah. earth did you decide to do a project of that magnitude? <laughs> well, I didn't decide to do it. it was uh, uh, Bondi did. Um, but uh, basically, um, the defence was over. Uh, Alan sold the two uh, 12 metres, the new 12 metres, Australia 3 and Australia 4, to a Japanese syndicate. The Japanese syndicate wanted to uh, race in the next... 12 metre world championships in Sardinia. Um, and I was sort of sold with the boats. So I think I was a part of the deal. Uh, so I went to Sardinia and managed their, uh, and sailed on, on their boats in the 12 metre worlds. And Alan came across in his, uh, in his very large uh, powerboat that he had in those days. And uh, when it was all over, um, he said, oh, come and see me tomorrow, uh, John. I want to, want to talk to you about the thing, about what you're going to do next. And uh, so I rocked up um, and uh, went in. Alan was having his breakfast and he said, he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, gee, Alan, you employ me. So, you know, <laughs> what, what's the story? He said, oh, Warren wants to build the Endeavour, Endeavour, a replica of Endeavour, cook ship, you know. Um, do you want to do that? And I said, what do you mean? He said, it was for the Maritime Museum in, in, in Sydney and uh, it's got to be, I, I want to build it in Frio. I don't want to build it over there and I want to sail it. To, uh, to Sydney and they just want to have it, have it on display. Anyway, do you want to do that? I said, gee, Alan, uh, uh, well, yeah, I'd sort of like to, you know, talk to you, talk to you about it. He said, hey, John, I'm busy. Do you want to build a ship or not? Oh, yeah, sure, Al, why not, you know? And that was it, like a 12-minute wow. conversation that then affected the next 12 years of my life. And he said, well, look, we've got a meeting in October, so this was in May, he said, figure out how you're going to do it, see whether you can do it. The budget's $13 million. Uh, we've already agreed that. Uh, so make sure you can do it for that and uh, figure it all out. And anyway, I've got to go. And that was it. So I walked off his boat and um, went back and saw Jen. And she, she, 
She said, well, what are we doing now? I said, we're building an 18th century ship. Oh, are we? <laughs> <laughs> where, where do we start? I said, well, I suppose we'll start at the National Museum in Greenwich. So I flew to, flew to London, rang up Greenwich and told them that, you know, wanted to build a replica of Endeavour and they didn't sound very particularly excited about it. So I thought, well, I'd be more excited than that. So they said, come around and we'll show you what we got. So I knocked on the door. Little old guy met me and was walking through the amazing, amazing halls of the National Maritime Museum. If you've never been there, go there. And this guy was quite disinterested. He said, oh, bicentennial next year. Yeah, we've had a lot, lot of interest. He said, he said, what scale are you building your model of? And I said, oh, uh, 12 inches to the foot. He said, what? I said, yeah, we're building it full size, like it's a full-size sailing replica. Oh, my God, he said. So he took me up to see the acting head of antiquities. And this guy wow. was just blown away by the fact that we were actually going to, you know, build a museum standard replica of, of Cook's famous ship. And so started this amazing relationship that I had with that extraordinary organisation, you know, because of the research that we had to do, because it's not a lookalike. As you know, if you've ever been on board, it's the real deal. Um, and, of course, as we know, halfway through the whole deal, uh, Alan uh, went broke, the Bond Corporation went broke, and I was sort of left there with a half-built ship and what to do now sort of thing. So uh, anyway, we managed to raise the rest of the money and and, and, and finish the ship, um, sail it to Sydney, which was the original plan, and then we sailed it around the world, and that was something else. Incredible. I remember going to see it again in my primary school days. Yeah. Uh, going there during its its construction, uh, no doubt thousands of people uh, will remember uh, doing that as well. Uh, John, you've described it uh, previously as being perhaps the most significant and important thing you've ever done, perhaps even uh, more important than the America's Cup. Do you still feel that way? Look, the two sit side by side. Uh, someone's asked me what was the most enjoyable, you know, happiest moment in your life, you know, and uh, besides getting married, et cetera, uh, and children being born and so forth, as far as work-wise and, uh, and uh, uh, of all that, crossing the line in the seventh race or the actual day that we launched the Endeavour were both set side by side uh, because it was such a, a struggle to get there in both of those events. I think that with the Endeavour, you know, sometimes you measure your life by how much joy you give people, and uh, I've been very lucky to say that, I've certainly made a lot of people happy with both of those things, but I think the endeavour with to see the thousands of people who have had such extraordinary experiences uh, either on that ship or working for that ship or guiding on that ship or literally visiting the ship, um, I think that has been uh, just such a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And um, so I'm enormously proud of, of both uh, my role in, in, in both of those things. Um, the, uh, but the endeavour, in a way, God, it was such a journey, such a journey. Yeah. And what about now, John? Um, are you still sailing? What, what is it yeah. that, that gets you out there morning? I, uh, I sail uh, still on a, on a Dragon, an international Dragon. In fact, I did the World Championships only two years ago at the age of 75 or something, which was... 18 races and howling sea breezes off Rio. So I was pretty keen to do that. But my latest thing is rowing. Can you believe it? Uh, and wow. there's this amazing uh, movement around the world called the St. Isle Skiffs. Um, and these are boats that you build yourself 
Well, you don't. You build them within the community. So their motto is um, uh, community builds boats and boats build community. So you get together with a group of people. We did it through the yacht club, but it can be a church. It can be a men's club. It could be a, a group that just come together to do it. And together you build these from a kit, but it's not a, you know, it's a, it's a real boat building. Uh, it's a boat that has uh, four four sweep oars and a coxswain, um, and then you uh, and then you row them, you know, consistently for for pleasure and some competition. And I first came across these at the wooden boat show in Freema, in Hobart, two thousand and fifteen, and brought the idea back. And we built two here. There are now eleven in Western Australia, um, and it's a it's a thing that is growing across the world, and it is so much fun just to. I mean, for example, there's one of our crews that race. They're all in their 80s. Every one of these guys in their 80s. And they get out twice in the once, you know, 6 o'clock on Thursday morning and Tuesday morning. They sort of hobble down to the boats. They're all ex-rowers, or some of them are, and they jump into these boats. 40 years drops off them and they row away <laughs> and it's just a delight to watch. So, yeah, the Senile Skiffs is good fun. I, I enjoy that enormously. It, it sounds like your love affair of the water. Um, is is still there, John. Thank you so much for, mm. for sharing your memories, particularly of the America's Cup with us and the Endeavour as well. And uh, 39 years on, congratulations again uh, for that success. And thank you for being part of the program. Thanks, Tim. It's been great fun. You've listened to Inspiring mm. Stories here on 882 6PR in this episode with John Longley. Don't miss out on mm. the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.